Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Le Vital Core Salon. As always, I'm your host and salonier, Kara Snyder. And each episode, my job is to introduce you to a modern woman who is out there trying to navigate bullshit and sidestep burnout. This week, I want to introduce you to Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundsted. Dr. Holt-Lundsted is an award-winning professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University, where she's also the director of the Social Neuroscience Lab. She also has an adjunct professorship at the Iverson Health Innovation Research Institute at the Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Holt Lundsted's research is focused on the long-term health effects of social connection. Her work has been seminal in the recognition of social isolation and loneliness as risk factors for early mortality. Dr. Holt Lundsted has worked with all types of organizations aimed at addressing this issue. This includes Congress, the Surgeon General, and the National Academy of Science here in the U.S., the Cross-Departmental Loneliness Team in the U.K., the Coalition to End Loneliness in Australia, and countless other organizations ranging from AARP to United Healthcare. In this episode, we dive into the fraying of our social fabric, the impact of social connection on our physical and mental health, and the current cultural stigma around loneliness. And coincidentally, and not necessarily intended, but just in time for Valentine's Day. Sometimes, folks, that's how the cookie crumbles. We have so much to learn from Dr. Holt Lundstedt. I can't wait for you to hear this episode. But first, don't forget to subscribe to Levital Core Salon wherever you listen to podcasts and share this episode with the first person you think of while you're listening. Voila! Meet Dr. Julianne Holt Lundstedt. Julianne, welcome to Levital Core Salon. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. There was a lot of information on the interwebs when I started going down the rabbit hole. And I feel like I've been looking at your work since I saw you speak at South by Southwest last year, because I didn't even know this was a whole branch of science and research that was necessarily happening. So I guess maybe the first question is, how did you come to study social connection and loneliness? Yeah, it really started, um, you know, in my education. I think like most students, everything sounds interesting. And well, at least for me, (laughs) Uh, I was interested in so many different fields and every class I took sounded, you know, super exciting. So I ended up uh, really wanting to be in an interdisciplinary field where I could look at, you know, the biological side of things, but also the psychological side of things. I, I, I wanted this kind of interdisciplinary approach. And really, um, throughout my, my doctoral training, um, I was really looking at how, uh, you know, psychosocial factors could impact our physical health. And really much of that work was focused on stress and health. And, um, you know, we would do these tightly controlled laboratory studies where we would, it sounds terrible, but yes, we would stress people out. And then, 
<laughs> you know, we put them in these these stressful situations, and we would then look at at, at how their physiology responded in these situations, and and trying to understand that. And you know, one of the things that that kept uh, coming up over and over again is uh, looking at how uh, people's social connection or s- connectedness and the extent to which maybe they had social support influenced these stress responses, whether it be uh, more of kind of this buffered effect, so um, social support, buffering the negative health effects of stress, um, or uh, relationships being sources of stress. And my early work was really, uh, you know, focused on this. And and then also um, getting to the point where thinking about how, well, relationships impact our health beyond the context of stress and, and, and branching out uh, on this. But really, ultimately, it was recognizing that pretty much outside of you know, a handful of academics um, or, you know, people within my field that pretty much anyone else didn't recognize the health effects of relationships. Um, and, and so it was, it was really that uh, impetus that, that then led me to do some of my much bigger meta-analyses that, that linked this to overall risk on um, for premature mortality, given kind of the lack of recognition around this topic. Got it. So I have a couple questions. Yeah. You're going to find that like my head gets filled with questions as we go, because I think I was a student probably similar to you. (laughs) And even now I'm like, this is so fascinating. This is so fascinating. Like when I go to parties and I find someone has like I mean, and it can be anything from like they're double jointed and that just fascinates me or it can be that, you know, they're like the world's expert in a certain type of sea snail. And I'm like, how do you know so much about this little thing? But I guess the, there's sort of, I'll give you both and you can tell me which one makes sense to answer first. Okay. But I guess I'm interested in knowing how you started to see social connection emerging in your studies And then I guess as an academic is finding a new unexplored place of research or what I would call as a service designer, a problem space. Is that like finding a gold mine in California, like in the 1800s? Okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll go in order Okay, (laughs) (laughs) with, you know, how social um, relationships emerged it was definitely always part of that. It was the extent to which it emerged as more of a central focus rather than simply how it affects stress, right? So I think early on, stress was kind of the key player <laughs> um, and, and you know, social support is just something that affects it. Um, and then it, it transitioned into the key focus. And that was really in part due to recognizing that my own relationships have an effect beyond just when in stressful situations. Um, You know, we go to our our relationships across a variety of contexts. And so it makes sense that our relationships would have an effect on our bodies 
not just when we're under stress. And so that's what really helped lead that in a direction that that went beyond that context. But, you know, when you say, uh, asked about the second part um, and, and whether or not this was something that was completely unrecognized and, you know, within the field, it's not new. And in fact, um, you know, there have been people who have, been studying the health effects of relationships before I was even studying it, you know, before, um, in fact, some of the evidence goes back to the 1970s. And in fact, the, one of the classic studies that, that linked uh, social isolation to mortality actually dates back to the late 1800s. Whoa. Yeah, um, there was a a sociologist um, who found that people who were more socially isolated were um, more likely to commit suicide. Uh, And so, you know, we've got evidence published in in the scientific literature, you know, way back then. And, and in fact, uh, and then there were epidemiological studies in the in the late 1970s that began to to look at this. And then in the late um, 80s, uh, there was a study published uh, in, in the prestigious journal Science that, that reviewed uh, five of these large-scale epidemiological studies. And yet, if you looked around at the, um, you know, the major health organizations and what they say affects your health, you know, that's not even was listed at all. Um, and in fact, you know, when I, you, you talk about going to parties and meeting someone who, uh, you know, studies snails or, or something, you know, I would have these situations where I would be, I would meet someone and they'd ask what I, what I did. And I would describe my research and to someone outside my discipline, it sounded like, it was, you know, they, they, I kind of got this reaction of <laughs> that perhaps maybe it was like pop psychology, you know, like, oh, mind body connection. Oh, okay. Like <laughs> it was some kind of pseudoscience. Um, and, and it really wasn't, I, I, I got the impression that people really didn't uh, view it as, as legitimate or um, something that they should be you know, taking seriously. That has to be so frustrating on a personal level because you're pouring all of your heart and soul and energy into doing this research and work. And then someone's just treating it like it's a fun party trick or like (laughs) some fluffy conversation. How did you respond? Like, what do you do with that? Well, I mean, I think it just reflects, you know, our natural biases in Western medicine has, you know, historically been very, um, very much um, biomedical with, with uh, very little uh, emphasis on, on social factors up until recently. And so I think it just kind of reflects our societal views and norms. And so, I mean, it, it wasn't surprising but honestly, it, I think, is what helped drive me to do some of the most rigorous work I could 
to to really help legitimize it. And that it seems like you're doing <laughs> in a very big way. Trying. <laughs> I think it, the work that you're doing is so fascinating. I, I mean, how do you find outside of parties, like people respond to the work that you're doing? I, I know academia can be crazy tough and like and needing really thick skin yeah. and everything is getting critiqued. And I had a, a recent guest who was a paleontologist and she was sort of talking about like, I forget what it's called, but the, the critical process, like when you're publishing and then you get all the feedback mm-hmm. and she was talking about like, some is useful. Some are just personal attacks and it's, <laughs> yeah. and it's not real helpful. Like, I guess like inside your discipline and then in other oh. scientific disciplines, like what is the response? Well, so within my discipline, first of all, my discipline's rather interdisciplinary. <laughs> and so when I, when I say that, it, you know, it's like, okay, um, am I talking about other researchers who study relationships and health, which could be psychology, it could be medicine, it could be epidemiology, it could be, and I think that's the part that makes it really tricky is depending on what field then you try and get your work published in, not all epidemiology focuses on social relationships, not all psychology, um, you know, focuses on health and, you know, the biomedical aspects. And so depending on what, uh, what fields specialty journal you go to get it published in, then you can potentially get reviewers that are less familiar with one aspect of it or another, which Uh, can be both challenging, but also one of the things that I've, you know, tried to, in addition to just developing thick skin, because these reviews can sometimes be brutal, but always try to take what criticism I get. And even if in the moment it feels really harsh and unfair, I I always take it, I'll read them, take a day, let it simmer, (laughs) and then come back when I've, you know, cooled off (laughs) and see, okay, well, if this person thinks this, someone else may also. And so how do I address it? And, and so sometimes it just takes, uh, you know, cooling off a little bit to really see that they have a valid point and how can I address it and how can it improve my work or how can I help or frame this in a way that helps others recognize that this critique isn't valid because maybe it, it just needs to be framed in another way so that this can be um, clearer. Uh, and, and so I try to, I, I always try to Im- use it in a, in a productive way. <laughs> Good on you. Good on you. I, I'm sure it's not always easy in the moment and taking that day is probably very helpful. <laughs> also yeah. probably hitting the gym, going for a walk, <laughs> talking uh, to a friend. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, because I imagine like, just so the audience listening gets a, a at least a high level understanding, you're doing big, huge metadata analyses. Can you kind of give a layman's or laywoman's version of yeah. what that means, just so people understand like the scope and size of the projects right. you're, you're working on? So, uh, 
you know, I, I think I can give a little context also of, of, you know, why I did it because, you know, as I mentioned, I was doing this work and, and most people didn't recognize that relationships can not only impact our physical health, but ultimately our lifespan. I really was kind of struck by, well, I'm aware of all this evidence out there. Why isn't everybody else? <laughs> and, and, and then I thought, well, okay, so maybe it's not as substantial as I think it is, or um, what is it? Why is it that uh, no one else seems to view this as, a, as important as I do? And, and so um, I took it upon myself to do a meta-analysis. And so what a meta-analysis is, is where you take all of the available data worldwide that's ever been published on, on the topic. And in, so you also try to contact researchers who've published in the past to see if there's additional work and data that they have that hasn't been published as well. And you try to get gather all of the evidence, everything available worldwide, and you gather that data and you combine it to then analyze so instead of just having one study that may be useful, but say is specific to a particular area of, a, of the country or maybe a different country or is only looking at older adults or may have you know, a number of kinds of things that may potentially limit how broadly we can generalize the findings from that one particular study. And we look across all of the studies. And, and so this also is incredibly helpful, particularly, I think, for, uh, you know, the general public. We're constantly hearing what's good for our health, what's bad for our health, and it seems to be constantly changing. Yes. And <laughs> a, a meta-analysis, in a way, is, helps us combine all of that to get one overall conclusion. And so we're not just reviewing it, we're actually combining the data and statistically analyzing the data. And so um, that process, like what I'm hearing you describe is it's sort of level setting and extracting some of these factors that might only relate to things in the 1980s or might only relate to things in the 1920s. Or yeah, so, so you're able to sort of smooth and, and pull those things in and out. Right. So we're able to code for, you know, the composition of men and women in the sample. We're able to code for the country of origin. We're able to uh, identify all of those things so that when we analyze it, we can say, okay, here's what we found overall. Did it matter whether uh, the study was conducted in the U.S. versus outside of the U.S.? Did it matter whether, uh, you, you know, participants were male or female or older or younger or um, whether they smoked or not. We can identify all sorts of variables uh, to, to analyze, but we're able to look at it um, overall. And, and in fact, so I guess here's another simpler way. Um, I mean, it's definitely much more complex than this. Of course. <laughs> but, it probably but, takes um, years, correct? Yeah. So... <laughs> I, I kind of explain it to some of my students as kind of like shopping online. <laughs> and, <Roll with> it. <laughs> okay, so I, I kind of use this analogy in the sense of 
when we're shopping online, we want a product that's got great reviews, right? But we don't necessarily just look at only, you know, a a review. We also want to know how many reviews, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, even if we were comparing a, a product that had, you know, five stars, if there were only two reviews, we wouldn't have as much confidence in it as, say, a product that had 2,000 reviews. Um, And that, um, you know, just like there are uh, some products, they might not every single one of them have five-star reviews. Occasionally, you get some haters out there, right? And, Mm -hmm. And, you know, there might be, but when you have 2,000 reviews, you can have more confidence that those one or two might be related to some kind of idiosyncratic aspect. Um, but overall, you've got, you know, another several thousand that, that are very, very positive, right? And, and so you have much more confidence in that product when you've got thousands of reviews versus just a couple of reviews. And so similarly, when it comes to research data, Uh, we can have much more confidence in it when we have lots of studies and lots of participants. So the more data we have, the more confidence we can have in it. Um, Whereas when we only have one or two studies on something, we have less confidence in, in how, whether we can, you know, really buy into those conclusions. And so when I do these meta-analyses, uh, so, for instance, one, we we didn't just have, you know, a couple or even a handful of studies. We had 148 studies um, worldwide. Uh, the second one I had had fewer studies, but it had um, over 3.4 million participants. Uh, Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so, we have a ton of data that we were able to then uh, combine to be able to analyze to establish the overall effect uh, of uh, social relationships on mortality. So here's the gigantic question, which everyone probably asks you all the time is, what is the research telling us? So my first meta-analysis looked across a variety of indicators of being socially connected. And uh, what we found was that, that being more socially connected was protective and it was associated with a 50% increased odds of survival. So people who are more socially connected live longer uh, than those who are less socially connected. Um, And because we knew that most people wouldn't know how to interpret that <laughs> you know what is what exactly does that mean 50 percent that um, just triggered about 15 more questions so yeah, you're probably yeah. used to answering um, these too so i uh also then found uh comparison data of factors other factors that are known to affect lifespan um things like uh smoking alcohol consumption uh physical uh activity um obesity, uh, flu vaccines, air pollution. Um, You know, we had a a list of these and we were able to benchmark the size of the effect that it has on our lifespan relative to these other kinds of factors that of course 
the the medical community, the general public takes very seriously for their health. And and what we found was that this was uh, comparable and in many cases exceeded the effects of, of these other uh, risk factors on, on our overall risk for mortality. So what is the risk of, say, obesity or mm-hmm. smoking versus social isolation? Uh, yeah, so I, I would need to go back and look at the exact number, but I do know that um, the effect of obesity on reducing lifespan uh, is smaller than the effect that being socially isolated or lonely has um, on our overall lifespan. And I imagine that obesity number changes as as does, I mean, all of these change, right? Because they're constantly shifting. But it just seems like coming from the health and lifestyle perspective that I'm coming from, like those numbers are in totally non-scientific terms, bananas and depressing. <laughs> so... And and, yeah. and and getting so increasingly like worse. The, the most uh, recent comparison, I think, was uh, 2017. So the data as of 2017. So of course, yeah, you're right, absolutely right. New data is constantly coming out. Um, but yeah, uh, and, and so you know, I think that that really helps us contextualize just how, how important we really need to be taking this um, for our physical health. So I'm thinking back to something you, you sort of shared earlier when you were talking about, like, how come no one is, seems to be taking this as seriously as I am? Like, am I the only one seeing this? Because to your, to your earlier point, like, if, if this topic has been researched since the 1800s, why are we just hearing about the loneliness epidemic in the last, what, handful of years? Yeah. I guess maybe talk about the loneliness epidemic and what that kind of yeah. means from your perspective. And then I'd love to hear, like, how come no one's been doing this, doing right. anything related to this? So I think that, and, and first of all, I, I don't think we can say for certain you know, that there's one particular factor that may be accounting for this. But I, I, I think we, there are some, some potential explanations. Um, and I'm like, okay, where do I start? <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it's, at first it was like, hallelujah, finally everyone else is recognizing and seeing the light, right? <laughs> I'm um, sure, like... <laughs> It's funny to like picture you dancing in your office, especially when you're looking at a topic that is sort of heartbreaking overall, but I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, then I've I've had to, to, you know, really think about this uh, quite carefully uh, from a a couple of different perspectives. Um, And there's two different perspectives we can take on this. And and one is a public health perspective and really uh, trying to quantify just to what extent is the public affected by this? Because from a public health standpoint, we prioritize factors that, uh, that affect a greater portion of the population and we prioritize factors that show greater urgency. 
um, uh, and that have some kind of trend that this is this is on the rise and increasing. Um, so there's that standpoint. Um, but there's also the standpoint of really just the public perception and potential critiques of, you know, is this something that, you know, really is uh, increasing? And, you know, why is everyone uh, seem to be, uh, or not everyone, but why, why does this seem to be generating uh, attention? And, and certainly critics have argued, you know, why should we be paying attention to this when there are so many critically important social issues and we should be devoting our attention and resources to these other things. And so there's kind of these two different uh, perspectives. And uh, there may be potential trends that are perhaps leading to at least drawing attention to this issue. And uh, that may be in part due to the fact that we are seeing this increasing trend in uh, use of technology and how the way in which we're interacting socially with other people uh, is simply just changing. And there, I think that's uh, raising concerns uh, among people of, you know, what, what does this mean for us? There's also, uh, regardless of what perspective you come from, I don't think anyone can argue that uh, there's a, a huge amount of political divisiveness um, in our country and in other countries as well uh, that has led people to feel less connected to their communities, uh, the even friends and family, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that this has heightened uh, sensitivity and awareness around uh, simply just feeling this this uh, sense of disconnection from others, but there's also important demographic trends uh, that I think people are starting to pay attention to. Uh, so, for instance, we see uh, demographic trends in terms of there are uh, fewer people getting married. Um, there are fewer people having children. Uh, more people than ever are living alone. Fewer people are in um, re religiously affiliated or attending um, any kind of, uh, uh, you know, or belonging to a, a church group. Fewer people are are volunteering, and so these trends also. Um, from a demographic standpoint, then raise concerns, particularly in the context of an aging society. So um, we have a growing uh, proportion of the population that um, will be older and with fewer uh, familial resources, fewer community resources to draw upon, as well as a, a smaller workforce from a public health standpoint, we also have to be concerned about how um, we care for our, our aging society. And so all of these trends may have also kind of raised some of these alarm bells. And so whether, uh, you know, there's a loneliness uh, epidemic, that really 
comes down to, first of all, if you're talking specifically about loneliness or if you're talking about a variety of indicators that people are simply less socially connected. Um, and so when it comes to loneliness specifically, unfortunately, it hasn't been routinely collected uh, and systematically examined across the you know, decades and, and population-wide for us to say with certainty loneliness has increased. We do know that a significant portion of the population uh, reports being, uh, being lonely, but whether or not that has dramatically increased recently, we can't say for sure. But we do have evidence that, you know, from some of these other kinds of indicators that people are, are um, perhaps less socially connected in other kinds of ways. Okay, so if I'm listening and hearing you correctly, I'm going to try to give this back to you. Okay. It sounds like when people are referring to the loneliness epidemic, that one, it's complicated. Yes. <laughs> very, very complicated. Two, that it's being driven by a bunch of different things and that loneliness is not, it's kind of a catch-all name for these other indicators? I guess, what are those indicators? Well, so I think people use it as a catch-all term, but in the science, like from the scientific side of things, it's not a catch-all. <laughs> um, okay. The way we measure it and study it is, is much more specific. So maybe I should kind of distinguish between loneliness and some of these other ways we, and other kind of, measurement and terms that are used in how we study it scientifically. Yes, um, because I realized one of the questions that I had for you in just sort of trying to prepare for this interview and kind of have at least a smidge of the knowledge that's in your head, it seems like there's loneliness and social isolation, which are two distinct things. And then it sounds like there are some other things that you're measuring yes. and looking at separately. So yeah, let's yeah. get us up to speed. Okay, so loneliness and social isolation, as you said, are, are two different things. They're, they're certainly related, uh, but independent. So social isolation is thought to be very objective. Um, it is often defined as... Um, having few relationships or infrequent social contact. Uh, and it's often measured in terms of number of relationships, so uh, size of social network or, or, or um, living alone. Uh, but it really is objectively getting at the presence or absence of others in, in your life. Social or... or I should say uh, loneliness, on the other hand, is much more subjective. And it, it's often described as perceived social isolation or that feeling alone rather than being alone. Uh, it's in the scientific literature, it's defined as the discrepancy between one's 
actual level of social connection and one's desired level of social connection. So uh, got you it. Can, okay. Uh, you can feel alone and not be alone. <laughs> um, but certainly you, those things can go hand in hand, right? So being socially isolated absolutely increases your risk of feeling lonely. However, you can be socially isolated and not lonely. So uh, some people uh, actually like to be alone. Um, they take pleasure um, in, in mm -hmm. solitude. Uh, so they may be socially isolated and not lonely. On the other hand, someone could be lonely but not isolated. Uh, they may still, um, you know, you can feel lonely in a crowd. You can feel lonely at a party. Um, you can still have uh, people that you interact with daily and yet still feel profoundly lonely. That's where we need to be very careful in, in distinguishing these because they can go hand in hand, but they don't always go hand in hand. Now, there's also other aspects of, of relationships that have been studied and measured. And I mean, if you think about it yourself and how the myriad numbers of ways that you could design a study that would, that would examine how people's relationships influence someone's health, you could look at it in terms of how much help they provide. You could look at it in terms of how meaningful or close or intimate the relationship is. You could look at how much conflict there is in the relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, you could look at you know, the number of associations or the different kinds of roles that people play. Uh, and so you can see how of course, in, in the scientific literature that this has been measured in, in a number of different ways as well. But the really cool thing about it is that basically we looked at all of these different ways and there's converging evidence in essence. Uh, and so I use the umbrella term as, you know, the catch-all social connection um, because what we find is that the more socially connected people are in a variety of ways, whether it's the number of connections, the quality of those connections, or the functions that those connections serve, that they all are associated with health effects. And that lacking um, and, or, or being less socially connected is, is associated with risk. So how can people listening sort of look at their own levels of social connection and understand if it's in a good place for them? That is a really great question. And one of the reasons why in um, one of my papers that I published, I have argued that we need to establish health guidelines around uh, around social connections much like we do exercise and nutrition and sleep where we have some kind of guideline on what we should be aiming for right you know we all generally know we should be getting around seven eight hours of sleep um 
whether we're actually getting that or not, we at least know what to aim for, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, and then there's the quality, and right, right, and so right, like there's you know, so many like hairs to split once you right, and, and, once you're trying to juggle all these things. Exactly, with nutrition, exercise, you know, it's not just how how often or you know the quality of that. It, it is complex, and so you know, just like these other guidelines, um, they're going to be imperfect but they should be evidence-based. They should be periodically revised as new evidence becomes available. Um, but that we'll really need this kind of, of recommendation in order for us to um, really, I think, move the needle on this in a meaningful way population-wide because uh, I think we can only get so far if... Uh, uh, until the average everyday person is thinking about this and thinking uh, what they can do proactively because prevention is going to be so much more successful than uh, trying to find solutions or intervene once the problems already become severe. And that's true for basically any health problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I shared with you how for about a decade I was doing health and lifestyle strategy work with women, you know, and I think one of the things that I had to address with a lot of clients early on was just even talking about basic hydration, right? Like they would come to me and they're like, I'm constipated, I have headaches, like, and I'm like, Oh, huh. Do you, you know, and on the intake form, I would ask like how much water they're drinking on an average day. But then when we really started talking about it, even something when, when my clients would push back on me and say, like, well, how much water should I be drinking? And then I would have to sort of hit them with a barrage of questions where it's like, well, do you have both kidneys? Are they healthy? How much salt are you taking? How much caffeine do you consume in a day? And even that was, <laughs> right? It was just like, I, I, a lot of people, I think the initial sessions with my clients were probably really, really frustrating for them because I never had an answer like that was some hard and fast answer. It was like, hey, let me get into the weeds with you and let's understand your situation. Right. Like how many glasses of water are you drinking a day? What's your weight? Like what's, there's a lot of things like, I can't just, you know, lick my finger, stick it up in the air and like see which way the wind is blowing. Like, we actually have to understand this. And you, as my client, have to start getting in touch with your body a little bit more and what's going on with you. So I appreciate the, the complexity of what you're talking about. Thank you. But, <laughs> but I guess, are there, are well, there things at a safe I, and high level that, that oh. people should be considering? Um, yeah, uh, you know, and, and let me just say, you know, I appreciate that you recognize the complexity because I think too many people, first of all, will ask me, okay, so what should we be doing about this as if there's just like one way to solve it? <laughs> um, That's laughable. <laughs> you know, and, and as if everyone's situation is the same. And, you know, I think about how other kinds of health issues might emerge and they're complex too and the underlying causes can be varied and so if you don't address the underlying cause uh, 
the the solution may not be effective and may be um, not very uh, responsive to the person's needs. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not going to be any kind of silver bullet out there. Uh, and nope. <laughs> Hopefully people who are regular listeners to this show like completely understand that. And any of my clients or former clients that are listening certainly understand that. It, it's, it's a really complex juggling act, right? Like if your marriage is falling apart, eating a dump truck full of kale isn't going to be the answer. Right. <laughs> like, you know, if you're, if you're smoking 42 cigarettes a day, but also running a marathon, like, uh, I don't know how that's going to work for you either. <laughs> like... Okay, so I have to say, um, you know, your, your marathon and smoking uh, example, I, you know, one of the comparisons that gets cited quite often in my data is that lacking social connection carries a similar risk to smoking up to 15 cigarettes per day. And I frequently get people say, so does that mean if you have lots of friends that it's okay to smoke? <laughs> You're like, eh, not quite. Um, yeah, these all affect risk. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, don't take yeah, that The, the uh, amount of questions <laughs> that you get like that are probably hilarious. Like, I hope oh, you write yeah. them down somewhere for a future comedy act. Right. Oh, and um, I get, uh, so just how many friends do I need for a health benefit? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, then yeah. that makes me think of like when you were when you were sort of describing loneliness, right? Like how many friends should I have? Yeah. Or for me, this, the, the, the correlation to my world was like, well, how much sleep should I get? Yeah. And it's like, well, research says seven to nine hours if you're an adult, but then what is the quality of that sleep? Like, are you literally in bed for seven to nine hours, but like reading a book or having sex or <laughs> doing a myriad of other things besides sleep? and turning. <laughs> or in the case of a lot of my past clients, just generally freaking out about your task list or mm -hmm. some situation at work or, or things like that. You're just playing that kind of stuff out. Yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, trying to answer that question, uh, you know, one of the things that we've discovered is, first of all, that there seems to be a dose response effect. So, you know, when, when people ask me the question of just how many friends do I need for a health benefit, it kind of assumes that there's some kind of magic number. And that below that number, you're at risk, but above that number, you're perfectly fine, right? So let's mm -hmm. pretend that that number is five, which it's not. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, it would be like, okay, so as long as I've got, you know, five friends, I'm okay. But really what our overall scientific uh, data suggests is that this is actually on a continuum, and the dose response effect, what that means is that for every increase in social connection, there's a decrease in risk. Um, and this is across measures of, uh, of, of size as well as um, function and quality. Uh, and, and there's data from uh, also from four nationally representative samples that, that showed this dose response effect. And it showed it across the lifespan. So for, uh, you know, from 
adolescence all the way to older adulthood. Um, and so that also makes it then tricky to come up with these kinds of recommendations, but other kinds of health issues have struggled with the same thing. <laughs> um, so for instance, you know, I, I think of, of, of blood pressure, right? And for the longest time, they just came, it came up with a cutoff of what they defined as high blood pressure, you know, 140 over, over 90, and that was considered hypertension and anything below that. And then, you know, given the fact that we do know that this risk is continuum, then they uh, came up with pre-hypertension and then uh, changed the guidelines again. Um, and there's, uh, you know, various uh, stages of hypertension now. Mm -hmm. and, and this reflects those continuums, right? And reflects the complexity. And so one of the things that I think we need to recognize is that while uh, it might be useful to come up with these cutoffs, just so that, you know, again, we have this kind of quick and dirty sort of benchmark to aim for, that ultimately, incremental um, improvements in our social connections will also have incremental improvements in our health. Okay. Maybe we can jump back because one question I want to understand a little bit and sort of unpack for the listener is when you're talking about social connections, like you sort of mentioned size, function, and, and quality. quality. Yeah. What are examples of what that looks like, right? Yeah. Like if people are listening and they're like, I like, what is like one little unit of, of social, yeah. what is the international okay. unit of social connection? <laughs> okay. So when we talk about um, size or structure, uh, that's going to get at things like the number of people in your network, whether or not you are married, uh, whether or not you live with someone, um, the number of social roles that you occupy, meaning are, uh, you may be a sister and a um, mother and so I, I'm listing myself, my own social roles. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> I'm a daughter. I'm a, um, I, uh, I'm a friend. I'm a coworker. I'm a professor. Um, you know, so we occupy different kinds of social roles. And for some people, some people have more social roles than others. Um, but the, the, the size really gets at kind of these numerical kinds of things, but they really don't get at what these relationships actually do or the quality of those relationships. Um, and so those are, that's really that size or structure is, is just very numerical. Um, the functional aspect really gets at what kinds of functions do our relationships actually serve? Uh, and so uh, this can get at many ways to look at this include things like, uh, social support. So uh, someone you can go to for advice, uh, someone that you can go to for a favor, uh, 
feeling a sense of belonging, that these functions that our, our relationships serve, also um, one that often gets overlooked is uh, even just the importance of physical contact and physical touch or intimacy. Um, that there are a number of functions uh, that our relationships serve that in turn can, can um, influence either our, our physiology or our behaviors that can in turn influence health. Um, and then finally is quality. And we know that not all relationships are entirely positive. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> if anyone has an extended family, <laughs> um, you know, so the extent to which we're, we're satisfied with our relationships, but it also gets a, you know, conflict, strain, and even potentially abuse. And we cannot ignore that. So, uh, you know, if all we looked at was uh, whether or not people lived with someone or not, we don't know that that person they're living with isn't nasty and hurting them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so we cannot uh, ignore the quality component, which I think often uh, does get ignored. And um, so, you know, what, what uh, we argue and what data suggests is that each of these is, plays an important role in terms of that overall risk or protection. So uh, the greater the, the quality, the greater the functions they serve and, and the greater the number, you know, these all go into the greater the social connection. This is associated with protective effects on our health and uh, lower aspects of each of these then uh, is associated with worse uh, health outcomes. Got it. Thank you for breaking that down because I think it's really helpful to kind of understand these different dynamics of it. Yeah. And, you know, I guess just to add, you know, one more component is because I think that quality component often gets ignored and people just hear the headlines and, and, and maybe even just the overall conclusion, oh, relationships are good for your health. You know, people might have the response of, well, you haven't met my friends or family. Or, you know. <laughs> Insert bastard. <laughs> right, right. Um, and, and so, you know, we all know someone who can be a pain in the butt. <laughs> um, and, you know, that might raise your blood pressure <laughs> from time to time. I'm laughing. I volunteer as a mediator. And right now I'm still cutting my teeth in small claims court. So I feel like I sit and get to witness conflict and people like not at their best on the regular. And it's, it's something <laughs> like that is a social connection, but it's yeah. probably not the ideal one. But I think the key is that our relationships can have powerful effects on our health, but these effects can be either for good or for bad. Um, and, and that's where we need to really um, understand uh, the aspects that are associated with protection versus the aspects that are associated with risk. And so I think by really clarifying those three major components, um, we can start to really uh, dive into that. Okay. So I'm going to make a leap here and you can, you can 
totally tell me if I'm way off base okay. with this question. But uh, flipping it around, are there ways that people listening can recognize if they're not getting enough social connection? And and maybe maybe I can share this, like a, a personal experience to kind of make that question a little more tangible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I realized when I moved from working on teams and working in a workplace to becoming a health and lifestyle strategist and working on my own and starting my own practice, I was talking to a ton of people. And I'm someone who's probably like 60% extroverted, 40% introverted. Um, I was talking to a lot of people. I was having really deep and meaningful conversations with clients, you know, for probably half my day, uh, you know, many days of the week. And so I was having all of this social connection. Yeah. But over the years, I started feeling an increased sense of loneliness. And I, I, I'm not even sure if it's, it, it's not social isolation, but this perceived loneliness that you described, mm-hmm. where I think about... <laughs> Five or six years in, I started recognizing, like, I'm feeling kind of down. And I think part of it, looking back, was I was having all these conversations, but rarely was someone saying, how are you? Right? Like, I might be on the phone for 20 hours a week, but then it was purely, it was, I was performing a function. Like, I was holding space for other people and, and connecting, but then also feeling like I wasn't energetically replenishing in the way that I needed to be. Right. And, I, you know, I think that contributed to me sort of looking at how can I use some of these same skills I've been building in my career for 20 years in different ways and start using them doing more collaborative work again mm-hmm. where I get to be a participant. And so that's kind of where that question comes from. But like if others are listening like, I guess I didn't notice for a long right. time that I was depleting my checking account little by little, right? It was as if someone was sort of pulling a dime or a quarter out of my, like, mental health bank account. Right. What is, like, how can people listening avoid getting into that trap? <laughs> yeah. Well, it raises so many thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Go for um, it. <laughs> so... Because you raise a few points. Um, one is that you also you mentioned how you were giving a lot, but not necessarily receiving a lot. But it also could be that you're interacting with people frequently, but maybe not necessarily with the your closest, most meaningful or intimate relationships. Um, and so there's a couple things there, um, but. The first one uh, is that relationships are are often reciprocal. They and um, you know two way relationships, and in fact, uh, very classic uh, relationship science research has looked at how um, intimacy develops over time, and and it is this reciprocal uh, self disclosure often, and so when we are interacting in ways that it's not reciprocal, so whether that's you're on, you know, 
seeing what everyone's doing online on social media, but you're not actually having this two-way kind of uh, communication or even the kinds of efforts that are being utilized to try and reduce loneliness where people have, um, you know, call lines. Uh, uh, oftentimes, they're not uh, reciprocal kinds of relationships. And so that can potentially leave us feeling unsatisfied. Uh, and, and, and so that, that may be one potential aspect, but, you know, when you were describing your situation, I had a very similar situation myself. Uh, I, you know, in the last uh, couple of years, suddenly there's been much more attention related to this uh, area of research and my research. And um, so I've been getting lots of requests to speak or to, uh, you know, where I've had to travel a lot more than I ever have in the past. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, it was fantastic. And um, I'm interacting with incredibly wonderful people. And I'm, you know, and I had to step back and really, I, I recognized, okay, am I spending more time talking about the importance of relationships than actually spending time with my own relationships? <laughs> Great point, and thank you for sharing that. <laughs> and you know, I I had to really step back and and think about like how is this affecting my own relationships, and am I being the kind of you know wife, mother, friend, sister, all of that that I should be, right? Mm -hmm. And how am how am I um, you know am I investing the time in my own relationships that I should be and. Um, and so, you know, that, that I, I had that exact same self-reflection <laughs> and I'm, you know, I, I can't say I'm perfect, but I'm, I'm certainly, um, uh, you know, doing better and making more efforts <laughs> and, you know, um, as a very nerdy health psychologist, um, I assign my, my students often to track their health behaviors, uh, for a couple of weeks and like literally track every single thing they do. <laughs> and uh, whenever I require them to do it, I do it myself. Uh, nice. And, and, you know, I'm constantly, you know, trying to tell people they need to take their relationships just as seriously for their health as they do exercise and all that. So I thought, okay, I'm going to add, you know, social uh, interaction as part of my, you know, what I'm tracking. And I, I seriously, for during that same time, tracked whether or not I actually got together with someone. So, um, and, and I said that I could see, you know, in black and white where I was, uh, what, and, and, you know, part of the assignment is also to ask my students to think about, okay, are you doing better sometimes than others? Okay, well, what might be the barriers? What's getting in your way? Um, and how can you come up with a plan to address those barriers uh, so that you can do better and, and improve? And so, you know, I, I hold myself to the same standards. <laughs> and I have to ask, like, was it you just decided to track data alongside your students or was there a moment 
where you recognized or were feeling something internally where you're like, something's off. Like, yeah, do, you, I, do you have enough evidence, like even based on your own situation and your own body, mind, and spirit yeah. to really know like where your set point is? Hmm. Um, I mean, there were definitely points where I, it was like, aha, like this is not okay when I would get back from a trip and literally have to turn around for another trip within 24 hours. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you know, that was, uh, and my husband and my two sons, they, uh, they, they had this kind of fun little routine of going out for Indian food when I was gone. And I went, to the same restaurant with uh, with my husband when I was actually in town, and they knew them by name. <laughs> I, I'm like, laughing because okay. I know. <laughs> yeah, I I was just expecting that. Like you walked in, and they were like, "Who's this woman?" <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know, so it's little moments like that where you're like, okay, I I gotta, <laughs> I gotta something's not right. <laughs> I I need to study this a little more. Yeah. And I really love your approach too of of tracking information. I mean, again, any of my clients listening to this conversation, I think I use the word "it depends" more than should be allowed by any human being at any given time. And then I think when they were pushing on, just tell me what to do. I was like, it's not my job to tell you what to do. It's my job to help you figure it out. And a lot of times, like we would just try to look at like, okay, what kind of information can you collect at a minimum for like the next two to three weeks so that when we talk again, we have something to compare, right? Like, you know, if it was a snacking thing, for example, it's like, okay, can you just write down what time you're snacking? Let's just start looking and seeing if there's any information in just that, you know, and trying to break it down to like the easiest thing and like less time intensive thing that would at least get us partially some more answers so that we could figure out what do we track next or what did this tell us? What's your, you know, what's your reaction to it? Well, you know, it's so helpful. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you know, I, I'm, I'm often hesitant to even share this example because I'm, I'm always so worried that someone is going to interpret that as me somehow, like, as if getting together with family or friends is a, a box I need to check off or something like that. And really, the, the purpose of, of, of tracking that is more for the kind of self-monitoring and becoming aware of what kinds of things are getting in the way of, of your relationships. And, you know, I was in at a university in Canada and they were telling me about a national survey where they asked uh, people about social participation. And for those under 65, uh, the number one uh, reason that they cited for not 
participating socially was because they were too busy. And, uh, you know, I think it's so easy to let so many things crowd out time for our health whether it's exercise or our relationships or, or whatever. Um, and that we often, even in, in the pursuit of really great things, um, can let those things potentially um, take up our time uh, and, and that we need to start thinking about how we, how we use our time and how we uh, need to make time uh, for our health. Absolutely. I used to make people do a time budget or not even a budget. It was, you know, recognizing that we have 168 hours, right? All of us. That is a cap. And then sort of like, okay, we all should be striving to get on average eight hours of sleep, right? For some of us, it's a little less. For some of us, it's a little bit more. But then, you know, subtracting that and like really making people go through like, okay, how much time do you spend literally cooking and eating food or picking up or eating food, right? Like some of my, some of my clients do a lot of takeout. Yeah. You know, and just really like just start with 168 and say like, okay, on an average week, what are the, how long does it, how long do you spend getting ready in the morning, right? Are you someone who showers in 10 minutes or are you someone who gets ready for an hour and a half? Mm-hmm. All valid, but like, let's really look at like, how much time are you spending on things? And I always found that was a really informative but massively uncomfortable conversation a lot of the time. Because when people really like laid out that math, it was like they were, you know, they were they were doing a time study, a really informal one. And, you know, it's certainly not scientific ideals <laughs> for for <laughs> For sure. But I think for the average person, it's something totally doable and something you have to really reconcile with. Like, am I spending my time in the way I want to be spending it? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people aren't even really consciously aware of how much time they spend on a lot of things until they are forced to (laughs) forced to track it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for Ages, I thought I got ready in 15 minutes. Turns out it's more like 30 minutes. (laughs) I was like, I don't wear a lot of makeup. I just put lipstick on, maybe a little mascara. Like, surely I'm in and out of the shower in 15 minutes. And it was like, nah, try 20 or 30. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This conversation has been so helpful and eye-opening. And I, I think your work is so important. And I'm sure as a scientist, you always have more questions than you feel like you have answers <laughs> some days. <Yes. laughs> um, I guess I, I want to leave some space for you in this conversation. What do you most want Levital Core Salon listeners to know or to take away from our conversation or your work? Yeah. Um, so I think the the key is that I think a lot of people recognize that our relationships impact our emotional well-being and maybe even psychological well-being. So our relationships can bring us joy, but also can, you know, be associated with sorrow and, and whatnot. 
but that this goes beyond just emotions. It goes beyond even psychological health, that it has real biological impacts on our health and, and ultimately our, our lifespan. And, and so we now truly have robust evidence um, that, that uh, being socially connected is protective, so uh, longer lifespans, and that lacking social connection, being socially isolated, lonely, all are independent risk factors for mortality. So independent of our, um, our mental health, so independent of depression, independent of smoking, independent of exercise, independent of whether or not we have some kind of chronic illness, independent of whether we are male or female, um, this has an, uh, uh, an, a significant effect and is a risk factor for premature mortality. And that this affects us all. It, in fact, we find no difference across males and females. We find no difference across uh, country of origin. And uh, there is some evidence to suggest that this is actually has a stronger effect among those under 65 relative to those over 65. Um, so I think there's somewhat of a misconception that this is also maybe something that just affects older people. Um, but, but it really truly has a strong and robust effect uh, on our overall health. And uh, it's time we start taking it just as seriously for our health as we do exercise, sleep, nutrition, um, smoking, all of these other things. Uh, and, uh, and really start uh, prioritizing our relationships, not only in our, our personal health, um, but that from a public health standpoint, that there needs to be more done at, at a national level as well. If listeners are hearing this and thinking, I want to help with what needs to be done, are there yeah. ways that people can help boil this up or help move this forward in any way? Well, um, I mean, one small thing um, that, you know, of course, small things among many people can have large effects. Hell yeah. <laughs> is um, really just, uh, you know, the small moments of connection and reaching out to others that can do on, on a large scale can have really widespread effects. Not only um, is there research to suggest that providing support to others actually um, helps the, the provider more. <laughs> so it's like one of the best things you can do for yourself <laughs> is to help other people. <laughs> uh, but it also, you know, can uh, help to start to begin to repair some of the, the mistrust we have in society. Um, and, you know, this sense of, of uh, a fraying social fabric uh, that, that uh, the more that each of us can uh, think, I guess, compassionately, because, you know, I think one of the questions you asked me is, how do you know if someone's lonely? And I think the, the question is, 
you often don't know. And because it can affect anyone, you never know what's going on um, in someone's life. You never know what someone's struggling with. And so a little, little moments of kindness and compassion and giving people um, the benefit of the doubt here and there, um, you yes. know, go a long way. <laughs> there are very few people probably, statistically speaking, and you might be closer to, what, to whatever real number this is. But I would have to imagine most people don't get up and say, you know what I want to do today? I really want to be an asshole. (laughs) I just don't think it happens. Right. I mean, there is probably a small subset of people and you could probably partially speak to abnormal psychology. (laughs) But on the whole, I think giving people the benefit of the doubt, like, and that it's often not about you. Mm Yep. Yep. And I guess, so this inspires one more question before I let you get back to your day. Like, it seems like there's a stigma around loneliness and isolation and talking about it culturally. Mm -hmm. Has there been anything that you've seen that's really effective in making that easier to talk about? So I think the more we can talk about it, the less it seems... um, you know, that can help to, to reduce the, the shame and stigma around it, but I don't think it's enough. There is this shame and stigma around it because by identifying as lonely, I, or I think that there's this sense of feeling like a social failure. And when in reality, loneliness is actually adaptive <laughs> um, in the sense that it motivates us. It's this uncomfortable, distressing feeling that motivates us to reconnect. And in fact, neuroscientists have argued that it is a biological drive, that we are fundamentally social beings, and it is this adaptive biological drive that motivates us to reconnect. And so feeling lonely is actually um, suggests that, that your system's working just fine. <laughs> it, it's more when there's this chronic sense of loneliness that, that is much more problematic. We don't need to feel ashamed of feeling lonely because this is, this is a normal response. But, you know, again, like I said, it, it's this chronic level that, that might signal a problem. And that's where, again, this shame and stigma might come. And given that we know that uh, the health effects are continuous and the way in which this has been studied has been on a continuum, we're all somewhere on that continuum, every single one of us. And probably sliding around on it, right? Exactly. You you might be a three one day and a five another and a two. Right. And so I think if we can talk about this more in in the terms of social connection and something that we all need to strive for, that may help in this conversation. Because when we use the term loneliness, it, it, it implies that you're either lonely or you're not. And um, when in reality, again, we're all somewhere on that continuum. And, and, and it also, by focusing on social connection, we can also think about it in terms of the 
positive protective effects and the potential gain that we can all get from it. And so, you know, I guess I'm a, a bit of a optimist <laughs> in the sense of I, I like to think of it um, from the positive side of things and that we through, you know, gaining social assets in, in a variety of ways that if we focus on the gains um, and the protective side of things, uh, that it's a very optimistic outlook rather than focusing on entirely on, on the deficits um, and, and the risk um, because it does affect us all. I like your style. So I, I think what I was hearing there if I boil it down, is if we are feeling a sense of loneliness, to try to think about it a little bit more similar to thirst or hunger, right? Like it's a sign that something's off and that we need to attend to something, but it's a bit more neutral than we're sort of culturally programmed to think about it. And then also then as as sort of a part two to this, to try to focus on the positive and just keep looking at and talking about like, where can I get some better social connection? Where can I increase my social connection? Where can I think about the quality of it? Where can I think about the frequency of it? And really trying to frame it and tackle it not as an issue of just loneliness that we're hammering at this really negative problem and trying to get out of some deficit, but, but to really look at like, what are the positive ways we can prospectively improve like from where we are today to where we want to be tomorrow to where we want to be next week or next month or next year. Right. Right. And, you know, I, uh, let me share one last uh, little story with you. Um, I, the last three summers I've taken students on a um, international studies program where I take them to blue zones, these areas that are lots of longevity where people live longer, healthier lives than anywhere else. Can I be one of your students? (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you register. (laughs) Um, But uh, we were in uh, this small village of, of Sardinia, Italy, and we were having dinner and we were prepping the students. Uh, the next day, we were going to be meeting some of the centenarians, and uh, we were going to meet uh, uh, someone who was 105. And um, one of my students, and and, and I, you know, I, I've really thought about this question. She a- raised her hand and asked a question. I've thought about this question several times since, and and she's like. Um, why would we even want to live to a hundred? Cause I, for one don't. <laughs> um, and you know, it's, it's interesting because she raised a really good point of, you know, I think we often think of aging and longer life as really um, just this slow, horrible decline. <laughs> And, you know, who cares if we live longer, <laughs> you know, um, and, you know, it, it also raises that question of not only length of life, but quality of life, right? Yes. And um, first of all, I can, I can, you know, I, I think her, her tune changed the next day when she met this, this, uh, um, at the time, I think he was 105. 
four. Um, and he uh, rode his bike uh, <laughs> a day. Um, he rode his bike to see us. <laughs> um, he writes poetry. He uh, was performing in, in theater. Um, just one of the most lively, active um, people I, I've met. And, you know, an example of length of life doesn't necessarily always have to come at, at cost of life. And, you know, when we think of things that extend our lifespan, there are a number of, uh, you know, surgical procedures and, and pharmaceutical techniques that can extend our life that come at a great cost of quality of life. Um, but the one thing that, that we found in this research is not only do, does uh, being more socially connected increase our lifespan, but it is associated with increased quality of life. So uh, lower, um, uh, lower rates of uh, cognitive decline, uh, so people are more cognitively uh, um, with it. We'll with just it. say with it. <laughs> um, there's greater satisfaction, lower depression, greater happiness, greater mobility. There are so many different aspects of quality of life that it has been shown to, to really increase both quantity and quality. Wow. Julianne, thank you for your stories. More importantly, thank you for your work. Thank you for just being you. Oh, thank you. Hey, everyone. It's Kara. I'm back for a quick second to remind you that all of the links and resources Dr. Holt Lundstedt and I mentioned in this episode can be found in the blog post over at levitalcoresalon.com. So that's L-E-Vital-C-O-R-P-S salon.com. And I want to thank you for tuning in. It's because of you that I keep making this podcast. So thank you for tuning in and thank you for coming back. I really appreciate you listening. And before I bounce, I want to give a giant thank you to everyone that helped make this episode happen. And that's producer Craig Snyder, that's my assistant Darlene Victoria, and that's Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for the excellent theme song. Before you all return to your day, don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.